Hi everyone, welcome to Luxury Book Club. Tonight we're going to be talking about 1984 by George Orwell. Before we start, just get a bit of business that way. Thanks uh, once again to the Genesis Cinema in Whitechapel for providing this wonderful space for us to uh, talk in. Thanks, as always, to Frontlist Backlist magazine who have helped to organise this. Frontlist Backlist is an online magazine that celebrates the best in what's new and what's not new. <laughs> with features on the likes of film, fashion, ideas, beauty, and books, regardless of their place in time. Our panellists who are joining us tonight. To my left is Declan Ryan, who is a Faber New Poet and the editor of Days of Roses, a poetry and prose anthology. He's also an editor at Ambit, a teacher at King's College London, where he edits Wild Court, an online poetry journal. And to Declan's left is Michael Holden. Michael is a writer, working in both print and screen. He's been a columnist and contributor to The Guardian and other newspapers, is a contributing editor of The Esquire in the UK, and has rewritten scripts for both major Hollywood productions and independent films. He also teaches film writing at the London Film Academy. So, to start, we're going to just talk about the book generally, um, and then throw it out to yourselves to see if anyone had any particularly um, strong reactions to the book. Declan, do you enjoy it? I've not read it. Um, no, I, I, no. Um, yeah, I did. I did. I read it years ago, um, many years ago. But yeah, it was good to go back to it. Really. Um, I mean, it's horribly prescient, I think. I, mean, I kind of knew that, but in my head it was just the kind of the surveillance stuff that I kind of remembered. But it's everything, isn't it? It's all the kind of language stuff, particularly. And, um, and that seems sort of very true. And also that, that kind of continuous war thing, the invented enemy. And, yeah, it was just horrible, really. I'm really upset. <laughs> Michael, did you enjoy it? Is enjoy the right words? Did you appreciate it? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Is enjoy the right words? Well, I, I had sort of a, a strange experience. I, uh, well, I'll make a difficult confession in front of a book club, which is that I think, for various reasons, it's been almost two years since I've read a novel. So that in itself was weird. And I felt initially quite hard. Like, I'd become the sort of horrible modern person that was like, it takes ages, <laughs> day after day, and you're with Winston for quite a long time in the beginning, and you're in Winston, like, or oh, it doesn't really give you any relief from him, and I, I read it, in, you know, I was 14 in 1984, and I read it, this copy, which in, in somehow, many things haven't survived that 30-something year interval, but this book has, as soon as I opened it, it fell apart, but it got that far, but that's, that's the 1984 edition, the cover fans. So I was surprised by lots of things. I mean, I think it's always instructive to come back to a book because you've changed. It is apparently the same. The world is different. It's almost as long from 1984 till now as it was from the book being written to that period, the 1984. So all that's caught up in you. But um, I mean, we could. Uh, this is going to go back and forth and stuff. Um, I'm sure as we go forward. But 
Yeah, I, I, I found myself to be very impatient with Winston. I found him, he's like a horrible man. I hated him. All his sort of bourgeois judgments. It's like, all right, you've got a shit job, mate. Fucking buck up. <laughs> you find yourself going, I, don't, I reckon I wouldn't be that unhappy. I reckon I can find a way of getting by. It's, it's not a terrible job. Indoor work, no heavy lifting. He's all right. So I, I, I found him difficult company. And then when the love story starts, it really sort of busts a move. You go, Thank God. Here's someone else, and, and, and then it evokes all kinds of other emotions. And then Winston takes over again, and I, I, I want him dead. I feel like I am O'Brien. <laughs> and then when, they get, when he gets Goldstein's book, which in this edition, they signify by using even tinier writing. That's the normal type. So when he gets the book, it's even smaller than that. But that was a relief, because I was so annoyed with Winston's moaning again. It's like, oh, a bit of political theory is better. And then I think the last sort of 30, 40 pages when the sort of torture and the isolation starts, for me was where the real horror started. And I, for whatever, straight, I, I saw it not so much as a thing about the future or, or, or that bit, which is obviously what people associate with it and celebrate it and, and the way that I've thought of it. It is, I think, on another level, a really stark and difficult attack on, or, or exploration of the idea of like, what, does anything you think you are have any meaning, or is all self-belief in some way sustained by a system that enables it, that stops, you know, and, and I'm under pain, you'll become nothing, you'll give up anything, the things you think your essential self are really up for grabs, your being is a luxury, and if the system that sustains that luxury turns against you, who are you then? And I know we'll get back to this later, but if you're interested in such things, Clive James wrote a really amazing analysis of Game of Thrones, which is in the, on the New Yorker's online site this week, and which apparently disconnected, but raises very, very similar questions about how he sees that show um, as an exploration of the same theme, really, of the ability to sustain any, any kind of idea or self in an environment which is systematically geared up towards really destroying any aspiration towards better nature. So I got all that from it, which is a long-winded answer. And I'm really, really glad I read it, and it's made me fall, sort of re-fall in love with the idea of spending time with a novel again. Because it does take you somewhere that nothing else can. And it was really good to be reacquainted with that. So I'm very grateful that I read it, but at the same time, really quite curious by what it stirred up. I think you raised a good point there about reading books at certain times and then evoking different experiences. Had you read the book before, Declan? Uh, yeah, I had, but um, yeah, a good while ago, probably, I don't know, before, before uni, or like, yeah, sort of teenage, callow self, really. Um, I think I liked Winston more than, more than other people might have. Um, I didn't like him, I suppose. I, I, did, I thought that whole torture thing where he gives up on Julia almost immediately, I thought that was a bit, that was a bit rich, maybe. Um, you wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I mean, I've never met him, to be fair. But, um, <laughs> But no, I thought, um, I thought that seemed a bit, kind of, that could have gone one way or the other, I thought. That, that seems to be... Oh, it's the last thing he does. No, but I mean, I thought that kind of, that spoke of more pessimism than I maybe wanted. I thought, because um, there were moments, weren't there, where he had that kind of, um, it's like existential wind, didn't he? Where he had the kind of, the rebellion of the diary, and then they had that moment in the field that was all, you know, that was all good. Um, and so I thought maybe it would have been quite nice to have at least the suggestion that, he might not have immediately given up on it. But. Especially as, as when uh, they visit O'Brien's apartment. Yeah, yeah. They're both 
firm on the fact that they'll never give up on each other. Yeah. I thought it was quite broad to sort of yeah. have that point land so heavily and yeah. then the point of the betrayal land so heavily. No, I think that's it. I mean, I think I kind of... Maybe just that was one of the few places where it didn't feel like it, it kind of... It showed its working, maybe. Because basically they just hit him on the arm and he went, yeah, fucking kill her, mate. It's just immediately. Yeah. No, it's not immediately. It's the penultimate thing. Yeah, right. He's been there. He doesn't even know how long he's been in there, whether it's day or night. He thinks it's as bad as it can get. Then, when they subject him to the worst thing he can imagine, which all other punishments, physical and mental, have been related to it, then he gives her up. I have to take issue with your assessment of that as being immediately in a brush on their arm. It's about the absolute destruction of the self, leaving enough intact for you to betray yourself and then killing you. It's not like someone going, don't you eat your wife? You go, yeah, kind of. What have I said? I had read the book before, but more pointedly, I think, I, I remember 1984 as a year. I was, I was nine years old, and I remember the book being you know, huge in popular culture. It felt like a moment that it had arrived. My actual direct experience as a nine-year-old was, was based around, now that's what I call music for, which was a popular selection of uh, chart hits from the time. And I bought it for the Ghostbusters theme tune, um, but it also had Sex Crime 1984 by the Arrhythmics on it. And I got really scared when I saw that, because I thought, my mum's gonna take my Ghostbusters tape off me. But it was all, it was all fine. Um, did anyone in the crowd have any particularly strong feelings about the book? Yeah, no, you were talking about yeah, the actual years, 1984. Um, when I read the book, um, based on this knowledge of kind of Orwell beforehand and Orwell when writing the book, it felt more like a critique then of going on in Stalinist Russia rather than anything to do with the future, really. It was all from now, it's all about the past, and not past 1984, more like 1954. Um, yeah, that was kind of my opinion about it. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the book does feel like it's designed as a contemporary critique. But I think the true power of it is the fact that it seems to now look like an act of prophecy. And an ongoing act of prophecy. We seem to be, rather than seeing it as a warning, people are using it as a blueprint, you feel like, in terms of some of the things that are going on right now. Yeah, um, I think it's important that um, 1984 was written as a satire. It's not meant to be a serious kind of uh, or uh, credible uh, description of what could happen over the following 40 years. Um, however, you know, if you want to find an example of a country that seems to have read 1984 and thought to themselves, well, you know, maybe we can't quite replicate everything in the book, but we'll give it a damn good try, is North Korea. I think that's where you find, that's where you really find, I mean, I know that you know, you say it talks about contemporary life. I think that uh, there's very little about co contemporary life that really does relate to 1984. But North Korea is an example of if you did try to, to have that. I see what you're saying, but like, just walking down here from the station, I went past the library. It's not called a library anymore, is it? It's an idea store. Because if you're a library, you're required to have books because of where the word, word root comes from. So it's kind of useful for councils to rebrand them into places where ideas are stored because the best place to store ideas is probably on computers and they're a lot cheaper to maintain than books and humans to look after the books. So I say what you're saying, but I think there's a sort of insidious shift. You know, we haven't got posters of Cameron on every wall looking at us for obvious reasons and he's not a handsome man. But I, I do think that I don't think we're as far away from North Korea as we'd like to think we are.
I think there's, well, there's two, I, I haven't read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, but I imagine a few people here have, but my, my understanding of that is that that's the other way of looking at it, that you can subdue a society through pleasure and the myth of individualism, and that seems to me to be more of our problem, at least here in this particular part of the world, and that I think those two sort of mid-20th century, whether, whether we call them satire or whether we call them social science, I don't think that nomenclature is is that important, but we can definitely see the two models of suppression exist and serve a wider system, one in which you're clearly subjugated, you can feel the boot, and the other one in which you go, oh, I really love the new boots, and your <laughs> desire is manipulated. And, and I think, you know, the, the abiding coincidence of the telescreen, and this was something that would be imposed on you, and it's now both an object of desire and something that you we, we voluntarily take with us that you know transmits and stores our thoughts our communications and, and and tells you know not governments but companies where we are so our engagement with what seems to be the apparatus of fiction is a lot more voluntary than that and obviously there are you know some good old-fashioned uh, wrong choice of words regimes that still really resemble sort of Orwell's model as well but it's funny I think how as human beings we we seem to lean towards one or the other about Orwell as a writer is really interesting because on the one side you have Eric Flair who is affluent, he can go and write down and out of Paris and London and then go for a shower at his aunt's house um, whilst at the same time experiencing incredible poverty so it's coming from really interesting levels but you also have like these whole other different ideas of just totally like um, Yevon, how do you say it? Yevonidomiatin's wheat that influenced it so you have these like layers of how awful society could be. The thing that I find the most terrifying is Winston's job, what he's doing with language. Because your ability to express ideas, that kind of, I think that's the most terrifying thing, not having language to express those ideas. Because we've got like a trio of English teachers here. <laughs> we uh, teach, with, uh, teach young people to write in sentences and not use slang. So that ability to be able to express yourself and the fact that the state could have an apparatus to assemble something to strip that away so insidiously you wouldn't even notice it. I think that is even more terrifying than the torture and the repressive state because if you can't think about what freedom is then where do you even go from that? I just think that is much more terrifying than rats. <laughs> Well, I guess that's an interesting choice, isn't it? Is the linking of the sort of theoretical terror and then your final indignity being brought to you by sort of physical, visceral terror. There's the things I guess we think we fear and then there's the things that we actually fear. And, I, you know, you could spend a lot of money in analysis figuring out how the two things, I guess, are linked sort of symbolically, metaphorically and throughout literature, right? When we, when we go and we read a book and we engage in an imaginative landscape, it is both from the mind of its writer and in our mind in which we perceive it in some way resonant of who we are and how we live and the times that we live in and you know we can't really get away from that so i think those i think the, the sort of marriage of two fears you know which is a very simple way of looking at both the fear of outer change and then also having a really visceral fear of something and how the combination of the two you know leads you to a point of real disaster but i think it's true what you're saying for me the most frightening part is o'brien's sort of last 15, 10 pages where he's laying out his sort of theory and saying we don't want to defeat our enemies 
we, we want to change them. And that seems to me like, the, you know, we're, we're familiar with what we think of as a war crime or an atrocity and the indignities that can be inflicted on the person. But I think what Orwell, deliberately or otherwise, ends up talking about at the end of the book is the idea that someone can reach into yourself and amend that. And that is, I think, a, a fear within a fear for us. You know, if you look at, you, you could sit here and watch 90% of the films which are on for the next nine years, and there would be some illusion in many of them to the idea that something in you is special, or you'll have some capacity in you which will be aroused under pressure, or which will help you, which will enable you to make the right choices and be a bigger person. And here you have a piece of work which is really going deep into the idea that we can take that from you, and under the wrong circumstances, that, that inner part of yourself will be destroyed and you'll say anything. You know, and what are you going to do about that? So yes, it is, it is a very dark ending, but I think you might feel rather different if at the end of it, he got his self back. Because I was talking to Emily earlier on, and I hadn't thought of it until today, but it, it, in a way it's quite similar, it has a similar dynamic to the end of Clockwork Orange, where Alex in that reclaims his individualism from the state, because they're embarrassed about how they took it from it. He's no longer a good advert for what power does in that. Whereas here, Winston's on a separate, but sort of analogous journey. Although, for me, the problem with him is that he, he, his self is kind of, is, I don't miss him. That's my problem with him as a character. It's like, he was never there to begin with, for me. Not that you would want a story where he was like a grand, heroic, poetic figure and you would feel differently. So I'm not questioning all those choices, but I think as a middle-aged man who's worried that he sits at desk and has become boring, I found him difficult company because of that. You, you see yourself going, oh, that's what I do, isn't it? We'll fuck around the words all day. And get really annoyed about other people's music in the back garden. So I have to keep some distance there. Well, no, I think it was just to pick up on the language stuff that you were talking about. I mean, that was one of the things I was most kind of struck by when I reread it. So I haven't read it for a long time, as I said, and, and that, that kind of thing about you know erasing a vocabulary and deliberately removing the things that people can think um, was sort of horrifying. Um, obviously, I mean, there's that kind of idea, isn't it? I can't remember who said it, but you know that we think what Shakespeare wrote in some ways. You know that you know that you have to have the idea written before you can you know have the feeling in some ways. It needs to be articulated in some sense. And so to sort of remove the words that you could even have these abstract ideas with, you know, that was that was the most horrifying thing I think. Um, to do that, you know, to do to a vocabulary the thing that you can't, uh, you know, you can't even internally have the concept anymore. I mean, that was the kind of, that was the real terror, I thought, um, in the book. And so, yeah, I mean, just all that stuff, and I, that, again, that felt quite, um, and obviously it isn't, you know, he wasn't predicting things particularly, but, you know, you can't help but sort of look around at, um, I saw an advert on the way here on the tube, and I think it was for Game of Thrones that you mentioned already, but um, there's just sort of monkey emoticons, and... It's just, I don't know, if we get back to the point where all we can use is sort of pictograms, then we're sort of fucked, aren't we, really? Um, I don't know, it, just, it sort of, it felt like, obviously that wasn't his, you know, his gesture in the book, but it's the same thing, isn't it? You, know, you dilute language away from abstraction, and all you have left is just these kind of, um, you know, you choose from this or this, and that's it. They're both concrete things, and, and that's sort of horrible. I've read the book before, and I remember thinking it was... Um, interesting, definitely interesting, full of great ideas, but I didn't enjoy it as a piece, and I still think, as I was reading through it this time, I found it sort of, I didn't engage with any of the characters, you say, I think Winston's quite a, a dull protagonist. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I, I've, I've agonised over this, I wonder if he's sort of necessarily dull, or it's me, but he does seem to be kind of, he, he's, you know, it's annoying, he's a snob, 
he has a kind of fantasy. He, he doesn't really like the proles, but he kind of would rather they saved him than he was engaged in it. His, his, what he thinks of his, as his idealism, which is the proles can save us, I think is just laziness. Like, like a lot of idealism, it becomes a narrative that stops us from having to do anything says he doing nothing but you know what I mean you get that fear about I think the fact that he's offloading onto them and then it's what I also thought about him as a character as someone who's who's adapted a couple of things for the screen is that and would be interesting when we go and watch the film which I haven't seen since 1984 either now the one thing that you really have to be on the lookout for when you're trying to change literature into drama is is it, it, passivity at the core of your central character it makes for a very laboured cinematic experience because we lose the inner voice so if you're looking at someone who isn't making choices and being decisive or being pushed by pressure then on the screen those things drag so the arrival of um julia is fantastic because not only is it really dramatically exciting because she seems more au fait with how to lie to the system she arranges the sort of rendezvous and he's kind of quivering and uncertain and so that that really sort of ignites the book for me her presence not only because things are more interesting, we have a love story, we have some familiar dynamics within this dreary world, but also because Julia's active and kind of wonderful and seems to be decision-making and, and really sort of breathes life into it. And it made me think about, you know, how different the story would be if you, if you tried to film it from her perspective, and then purely sort of academic intellectual exercises. But, I, but yeah, I did find, you know, that aspect of Winston, that he is kind of drifting and moving away from choice. And I also think and this is maybe just the weird analysis, you know, speaking as a writer and thinking about Orwell as a writer. But I think a lot of the, a lot of the anxiety and the behavior of Winston is very writerly behavior. And, and his relationship with Julia is a case in point because all he does is sit in a canteen and resent her and think, I wish she, and, and then she has to give him a note, like, which is, which is the most idle intellectual fantasy of romantic engagement you can have, which is maybe if I sit here and do nothing, people will realize I'm clever and fall in love with me. And, you know, many of us probably delude ourselves with that, but at some point you either think, well, I'll get drunk and I'll talk to them, or I'll, I'll go home, or something will happen. But the fact that the pivotal stuff revolves around him sitting there, and he, to the point where he's having violent fantasies about her, and then she goes, oh, there's, a, there's a note saying I love you. I mean, in terms of action versus passivity, it's um, uh, it, 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 they're, they're, they're extraordinary choices, I think. And, um, uh, and the other thing for me that I thought constitutes what I suppose these days would be thought of as a plot hole and made me think maybe someone here knows if there's like a missing chapter or something. But that I just think they just go to O'Brien way too soon and without any kind of forethought. It seems to leap from like going, well, this is great, isn't it? Having sex in secret. Why don't we go and see that guy? We know very little about. Apparently, he's got great coffee. So like suddenly, they're like a fucking Nescafe couple. All thought of after society is gradually down. Whoa, remember us from work? It's us. Well, it also. Well, initially, yeah, but then he goes there an unspecified amount of time later with his illegal girlfriend. And goes, whoa, dude! There's also a bit of a cheat early on as well where. Before uh, there's any sort of interaction between Julia or O'Brien, uh, we get this wonderful sort of inner monologue from, from Winston where he's like, yeah, O'Brien looks at me once in a funny way, yeah. but makes me think he's probably part of a revolutionary brotherhood. <laughs> then, just to, just to cement that, he had a dream and he's like, I'll see you. I'll see you in that place. Well, it's pretty sexual as well. Yeah. His, his relationship to O'Brien is just covert glances and a fantasy. is more sort of conventional romance than... 
than how he thinks about Juliet. And if we're talking about sex, which I suppose we are now, I'll, I'll say something else, because maybe, maybe someone else in the room can share and a thought about this. But yeah, so I read it when I was 14, which is obviously an important point in your adolescence, I guess. And, uh, and so I remember, and it's funny, because like I said, I hadn't read it since then. And so the, the room where they go and have sex secretly during the day, while people are doing normal stuff outside, I think formed my idea of what kind of relationships were about. And like the fact that you're really getting away with stuff. Not necessarily that you're, that, that somehow any time spent having a good time is like time away from work, or time away from the government and some secret thing. And the other thing that really reminded me of when I was reading it was some, some of, sort of Charles Bukowski's work as well, where he's really sort of visceral about the idea that if you're having sex, it's kind of a sort of fuck you to the government or where you should be working and that stuff. And so I, was, I think I have a weird relationship now, not, not the one that I'm in, but... Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so I, I, I've often, I don't know, okay, I'll be frank about it. I, I, I prefer having sex in the daytime, I think, because it feels like you're getting away with something. <laughs> At night, you could be fucking sleeping. What's the point of that? It's like, it, it's much better, because it's like, you should, you should do this. It, it still feels decadent to me, and I think it's because of this book. Some part of my adolescent self thinks that's going on. I haven't told my wife any of this. Not that she would care, but um, I hope. But, uh, but that occurred to me today, and I thought, since we're here talking about a book, it would be better to dig deeper and be realistic. But I think that idea of basically going into a secret room and nobody knowing, and you're betraying everything, and, uh, and there's a line in there where he says, she took her, she takes her, it's hot, yeah, whatever she's wearing. I mean, I imagine it's like dungarees or something. Overalls. She took her overalls off and it was like an entire civilization collapsed. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's a bold bit of writing. And I think if you're lucky, sometimes it, it can feel like that, you know. Anyway, I just thought I'd share. You know, another hour to the films on. I hope you've got something. Yeah, so, Michael would like to share based on your... That's the end of the sharing. Right, but... You seem to want to it's dark almost, so um, Does anyone have any particular memories of reading the book for the first time? I stole my copy from my school library. Oh, that's strong. <laughs> that was all yes. I had to say. <laughs> but yeah, you are a teacher now. I know. <laughs> I probably read it to a similar age as most of the panic time in my mid-teens. And then, when I first read it, I felt this like, very like, political thing, kind of, fuck you, fuck the government, and what do you mean? When I maybe read it a little um, later, and perhaps when I was a little bit more emotionally mature, I kind of wasn't even paying attention to the fact that kind of there was this topian going around. All I cared about was this love story in the middle, which is to me, um, kind of having this dystopian background just made it feel so real. It's just a sad thing, you know, love against all odds. And that was what, that's what really hits me when I, you know, when I've reread it recently. That's the thing I care about, it's kind of this love story in the middle, probably for reasons I've been discussing the panel about Winston being such almost like unlikable character, probably deliberately unlikable. But yeah, kind of the second time rereading this kind of completely changed from the first time. I think Winston comes across as functional, that's the thing, isn't it? He kind of needs to be inert so that there's a reason for other characters to spur him yeah. on that sort of drives the plot. And that's the thing, like I say my memory of it was of it being quite functional in terms of plot, quite functional in terms of characters. The characters that you need um, seem like more like caricatures, aren't they? They're like prove a specific point as they go along. Uh, my my favourite person was probably towards the end where we sort of meet a lot of the characters again 
in the prison and you sort of see them under that different um, situation. But, I mean, reading it again now, and I guess more actively because we're, we're, we're reading it with a point to discussing it, I did find it more technically enjoyable than I thought. I mean, uh, the obvious thing is the the opening line, which is one of the most famous uh, in the trends. The one does a wonderful job of of sort of establishing the pace, and then the tone of the book is so unremittingly grim, isn't it? Everything just feels sort of horribly oily and grim, and yeah. well, until they, until they fall in love, you know, or, or if we can call it that, that's maybe a separate conversation. But I mean, not for nothing, I think does that happen in the countryside? And for me, there's like a weird practical disconnect then as well, because I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten all that stuff, and you're reading it, and you're in this terrible, dysfunctional city, and then it's like, well, you just get on a fucking train, mate. Why haven't you done that anyway? <laughs> Why has someone else had to... That was me getting more annoyed with it. It's like, someone else had to make you do that. You could have gone there any time. Why don't you go on these community hikes? I mean, they sound awful, but it's got to be better than you staggering around in your flat, moaning about the smell and the neighbours watching all the tobacco fall out of your cigarette. Go for a walk. So that sort of, again, I was like thinking annoyed with Winston for that a little bit. But there's a beautiful bit in that when they're talking about, uh, there's a bit uh, when he writes about birds singing and they're concerned with the possibility of hidden microphones and he speculates on whether the person who might have to listen to the hidden microphone, which isn't necessarily there, might sort of fall in love with the idea of birds singing, which is a great small idea on its own and then I don't know how many of you have seen the film The Lives of Others which is you know connected to this in a lot of ways because it's set in post-war Eastern Europe and a, a state that functions like this but that's about someone who's listening to a pair of, of people as part of his job as surveillance and begins to fall in love kind of I think with both of them and within the world that they represent so I saw like a once I stopped being angry with Winston there was like a straight line through that, that little half page about the bird song and the potential surveillance of nature potentially touching the surveyor to, to that film, which I think is, you know, is, a, is a fantastic film and if you haven't seen it and, and you're interested in this kind of thing, you, you, you absolutely should. Yeah, no, the, the bird song bit is, is amazing, I think, um, in the country, isn't it, when they hear the, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know, I think, um, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't like him as much as maybe this is going to seem, but um, I, don't, I just want to stand up for Winston a little bit. Stand up for um, Winston? Not usually, I mean, I think he's, the only thing with Winston is that he does sort of, do at least one active rebellion, doesn't he, with a diary, early on. That isn't sort of... Oh, yeah, no, I'm not saying... Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is just... I suppose it's so well set up, you know, that, that situation where anything is a kind of a rebellion, isn't it? Any, any slight, um, sort of, you know, divergence or anything, you know, is a and, you know, it's, it's difficult. But, no, I mean, obviously there is an element where he is, you know, mildly insipid and all that. But I suppose he's, you know, he has to walk that line between being kind of beaten down and, and all of that. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's interesting, as you said, about, you know, the love story being so central to it. And I think when I read it again, that, that was really kind of, like you said as well, you know, kind of heightened by um, kind of rereading it. And it, it felt like the only place where there was any moment of kind of hope or something. And then the bird seems to be, you know, entirely that kind of the symbol of that. But um, it's one moment where they can be free in the country and all that. I think we're kind of used to protagonists being these very kind of strong characters who are very strong-minded and we kind of always expect from a protagonist to be kind of very um, certain in their views and like willing to push them through but I think all of the depiction of Winston is kind of testament to the fact that he's trying to portray a character who is more kind of realistic I suppose of the general population somebody who 
has a lot of negative features, but also positive ones, which kind of poke through at times, but um, he's also, you know, showing his facility because he can't, he doesn't really have the courage to push them through, and I think that's, I think that's kind of an intentional trait of his. Yeah, it does give flexibility, doesn't it, in terms of what, what the author needs from each scene. If, if we need Winston to step up, he can sort of, you know, take a risk and go to a certain place, but there's always the, the, the possibility of him shrinking back again. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely a great point. And, and, you know, novels are much more a place where you can do that than you can in, certainly in mainstream cinema. So, yeah, you should, you should have those kind of layered protagonists and thinking, which are a big bit, but I, I just think he's, for, for me, he's not even good company on that level. The nature of his insights, if at some point you had to, I had to make a list of, like, other or, or protagonists who do very little but who are still great minds to be spending time with, I think there are others that I put above Winston Smith, that's all. And that's easy for me to be wise after the event. I mean, the other thing that I think that's a huge shift from 1948 or 49, whenever it came out, to now, which would, I think, have given the book a totally different power and a way of, and a way of connecting with Winston and, and the whole thing, is just how similar post-war Europe was to what he's describing here. You know, rationing, bomb damage, posters, sirens, aerial attacks, all those things would have been things that happened to you in the last two years. I mean, that's as recently as, I don't know, whatever you want to name, some event, that, you know, more recently than the Olympics, right? You've been at war by the time the majority of people are reading this book. So I think that the visceral nature of that connection, and everyone would have had a, a Winston-esque experience just trying to go to work in a sort of bombed out, particularly in London, in a sort of bombed out, or any of the European capitals which had suffered damage. This would have been so close to home that I think that the distance that we have now, whatever it is now, 60, 78, whatever it is years later, is, you know, the, the, those, those shortcomings, we're, well, I mean, here we are at the luxury book club. I think we have a huge luxury of being so far away from the middle of the 20th century when this would have felt like a very different kind of adventure, you know. Um, a question rather than a comment. Um, good to have two different views of Winston. How much do you think maybe Orwell might have been trying to project himself and so therefore not making it a very heroic figure, but actually him, it's his last novel, he's coming to the end of his life, Winston doesn't make it through, he's fought in the Spanish Civil War, he's been sort of on the side of the you know, inner part, sorry, the middle party, so to speak, in terms of his, his views, and maybe how much of it is his own disillusionment and it never happened, and I don't want to make it a heroic figure because I'm not myself. You know, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, it does read like a, a sort of a disillusioned novel in, in you know in many ways. I think it it's someone who's disenchanted with that kind of optimism that he would have seen, I suppose, in the 30s. You know, that kind of you know we can win this and we can you know reshape the world. And I think he's you know he's, he's lived through all of that um, totalitarianism, and it's just going to carry on, isn't it? You know, that's it. I think I think it's definitely a gesture towards well, this is just going to carry on. People aren't going to ever change. You know, this is just. Yeah, I think any hope of revolution at that point is kind of, you know, done really um, as a kind of political idea. You know, there, there's the spirit of, you know, kind of post-war optimism and, and all of that. But at the same time, I think he's probably at that point thinking, yeah, this is there's never going to be enough of a reform that we're not just going to keep repeating all of this stuff. And that's definitely in there, I think. But also, I don't know. I think um, 
there's a certain realism about it as well, isn't there? You know, this this idea of you know having lived through these grand kind of you know operatic emotions of, of politics being so central to everyone's life and these kind of totalitarian um, gestures that you know two decades worth of them. You know, you just sort of I think you know the individual at that point is really diminished you know, as a as an idea. You know, it's only the advertising that kind of comes in the fifties, I guess that you know, re-establishes this sense that, you know, you are the most important thing in the world and you are this kind of central, delicate snowflake of a thing, you know. I think at this point, it's a kind of, it's either a kind of all in it together or it's diminishment, I think. There's no sense of that kind of high-velocity kind of capitalist, we are all kind of brilliant people who deserve the best. You know, at this point, they're just kind of beaten down. And, and I think with him particularly, having had all these grand hopes for socialism at one point, I think it would be a really discouraging time, you know, and, and so it probably would ring false if it was, you know, there was this grand conquering of this regime because it couldn't happen. He, he knew it couldn't happen. He'd seen it not happen. I, I don't, I don't know as much as I'd like to about um, George Orwell's life, and I'm, and well, clearly you, you know what you're talking about, and I assume there's other sort of Orwell scholars and fans in the room who might be in a good position to address this question as well. I, I mean, I'd be keen to know, if someone here knew a bit more about it, what Orwell's personal and romantic life was about. Because I think the relationship act was like, you know, I don't even know whether he had children or not, because um, that seems to me to be an important aspect of the story as well, how, how Winston relates to other people. So I don't know enough about George slash Eric to be able to make those kind of judgments but, or, or assumptions or inquiries, but I mean, I, I, I do think as, as a writer, if I can boldly put myself in the same, whatever the fuck that is, as, as, as George Orwell, technically, I have tithes and received payment. Um, uh, looking at it, there's a lot of writerly stuff in it to me, by which I mean the fact that his first transgression is, he, he, he's very eloquent, um, uh, Winston about the, the problems of a blank page, even though the paper is stolen and is a terrifying thing to have in itself, that man in the alcove with no idea what to write is is clearly a dilemma. You know that, that anyone who's tried to do that faces. And also, I think what what any writer or anyone now with any engagement with any form of sort of social media, although it's become very easy. I think the problem for a lot of writers when you want to write honestly, if you're doing it through fiction or non-fiction, is, and, and this is also true of all of our private lives, is what will people think of me if they really know what I'm thinking? If they really know what I'm thinking, am I acceptable? Am I lovable? Can I go on? Or am I an enemy of the state? You know, that's one of the core investigations of the book. I think the fictional world of Ingsoc is a means to explore that inner fear that we all have as human beings that we have, we have terrible thoughts, right? From our infancy, you know, again, this is not new stuff, but it's like, you're fucking angry with your parents, right? And yet they provide for you. And, and you know, the whole concept of double thing is an exploration of what, you know, contemporary psychologists and people refer to as cognitive dissonance. It's, it's, it's exactly how we operate as human beings. We can entertain and must entertain two conflicting ideas in order to move forward. So I think as life has gone on for Orwell, Eric Blair, you become increasingly aware of that. And the choices that you make when you face those options become the story of your life. So I think I, I definitely get something of an, of an older person, of an experienced person writing this, because to me, what we think of as the science fiction of it, I said is really an apparatus for investigating you know, the operable contradictions of the self, of, of just being a human being. So that's what I think he's, that's what I think he's kind of getting at, and 
all the world is the world of the story is a way is a way to push that point. And I and I and thank fuck I didn't think like that when I was fourteen. I would have been in trouble fourteen year old if I did. I, I I'd be really keen to read it again in thirty years time, you know, if I was today able to do so because I, I suspect it's one of those investigations that will change with you. And and that's that's the test of a good book, right? Because there's some books that you, you read and you think you're too young and there's other books that you clearly grow out of and there's some and maybe this is one of them that you can that, that will stick around with you, you know. So so like I said, I don't know enough, but I'm sure there are people here who do. So if anyone wants to tell us a bit more about Eric Blair, and oh, there we are, you've already, you're way ahead of me. In an Orwellian way, you've already got the microphone. Your voice will just come down from the screen. Yeah, in answer to the, the last question about you know his love life, or Blair's love life, um, his wife Eileen had died. She died suddenly, um, she was having a routine operation. And um, Julia is essentially, well, people think that Julia is essentially based on Sonia Brownell, who he married just before he died. I mean, he married her on his, on his deathbed, basically. Um, and by 1940s standards, she was a bit of a goer. So um, this, is, this is kind of reflected in Julia. Julia is a man's fantasy of, you know, what a what a young woman is like lusting after a 40-year-old man. Um, and she is described as the girl from the fiction department. Now, Sonia Brownell was the uh, secretary, I think, of the editor of Horizon magazine that Orwell used to write for. So there's, there's a lot of evidence that Julia is basically Sonia. That's one thing. The second thing I wanted to talk about was when you were talking, people were saying it's unremittingly grim. This gentleman over here said that he read it as a satire. I've been doing a lot of reading lately about um, what happened when the BBC did a play of 1984 in 1954 with Peter Cushing. This was five years after the book had come out. And it was the first TV scandal in this country. It caused a sensation. And if you read the comments, a lot of the people are saying, well, I think the adaptation didn't get the satire, it didn't get the humour of the book. And I do wonder whether seeing films like the one we've seen, we're going to watch tonight, and the, the Peter Cushing version, and the other film versions that don't capture the satire, whether we're not reading it in the, in the same way that people in the late 40s and 50s were reading it. Um, and the third thing, you were mentioning the, um, the reflection of 1948. It was written in 1948, came out in 1949. And how the, 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 the atmosphere of the book reflects that time. Well, it's very interesting, again, in, this, in 1954 when the TV version came out. And if you read the comments from the Daily Worker, which is now the Morning Star, um, and the way that they basically saying that Orwell was a traitor to the left um, and, you know, rubbishing the, the great workers' paradise of the Soviet Union. And um, there, was, there was one particular review at the time that was talking about, well, first of all, they were accusing him of going over the Tories because he'd named his hero Winston. Um, <laughs> And secondly, it was talking about um, 
Yeah, the things, they were saying, when the book came out, everybody knew that things like, have you got any razor blades, was what was going on in, in the, in, during the war, or, or during the late 40s when there was still rationing going on. So, um, as far as the, the daily worker was concerned, all of um, these concerns and preoccupations um, were the concerns and preoccupations of, of 1948. Yeah, I, I don't think enough has been made of the context in which uh, 1984 was written, and uh, people have talked about the rationing and the and the austerity of Britain, uh, of, uh, Britain at that time, but also the fact that Orwell himself was mortally ill with tuberculosis, and one of the symptoms of tuberculosis is it induces an incredible pessimism, and it's a very, very, very black novel. Uh, if you compare it to another dystopian novel, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, it's much, much blacker. I mean, or, uh, Huxley's novel was written before that, and it's much more about the scientific development of the future development of man, you know, the dividing into intelligence levels between alphas and epsilons and, and so on. Orwell's is much more about the political control. And the key to 1984 is Orwell's experience of totalitarian communism in the, in the Civil War of Spain, which nearly actually killed him and did kill several of his friends, and his total disillusionment with socialism and with the left. Although he call he calls the uh, ruling ideology in 1984 INGSOC, English socialism. But one thing that hasn't been mentioned is that Orwell wrote a memorandum to I think a department of the Secret Services, department of MI5, naming various friends, former friends of his, leftist friends of his, who he saw as communists and fellow travellers. And by the end of his life, he became totally disillusioned with every form of socialism. And it's no wonder that 1984 was a Samizdat bestseller in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. It was seen by them as an exposure of communism and indeed of socialism, the whole idea of collective, of, of, of the left. And I don't think we've made an, uh, enough of that in our discussions tonight, that it's actually a rejection in toto of communism, which Orwell himself had seen rejected in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, I, I reread the book, I've, I've read it about 30 years ago, and I've reread it recently. I, I think it's interesting the points you made earlier about the Morning Star, and how uh, at the time it, it, it said about Orwell that it was wrong what he was saying. But of course, in the book, Winston's position is that you've got the, the 1%, doesn't that ring bells now, and then you've got the, the, the bourgeoisie, and then you've got the proletariat, and nothing's ever going to come from the proletariat. And of course, uh, Orwell's position would have always been that it would have come from the proletariat. So I think that's quite important, that, that it's written off, and yet his own views were perhaps different. Secondly, I think one of the really important aspects you picked on earlier was about the encyclopedia that one of the characters is contributing to, and then they're gradually getting rid of every word and every word, so it's just yes, no in the end. And it's all part of the totalitarian position that was being reflected eventually in Russia. And the other thing is about the, 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 the film that you mentioned earlier, the, the uh, was it the East German film? The, uh, Lives of Others, yeah. Yeah, and it, I saw, when I saw that, I saw lots of connections with 1984, because you can see how it all worked out along there. The other thing about the book, of course, is CCTV, and that's become completely prevalent now. I mean, in this country, we've got more CCTV than anywhere else. And in the, in the book, it's completely, it's permanently there for that bourgeoisie class who are constantly being looked upon. Now, whether Orwell would have believed that the only way there would have been some sort of revolution would have been via the bourgeoisie, 
writing off the proletariat is another matter. But it, it, I thought we brought up lots of interesting uh, aspects that connect now. And of course, finally, Airstrip 1. Of course, you know, we still have nuclear weapons here that would be used as a first strike on Russia. So I think that was very accurate at the time, and that not much has changed. Finally, what I would say is, it is a bloody bleak book. Oh, there's no way around it. <laughs> as I, I'd always thought of the book as, as pessimistic, that was my, my takeaway from my earlier reading of it. And reading this time, going through the book, I had this similar thing. But then reading around the book, uh, I came across uh, a fantastic point that I'd never sort of seen raised before. And it revolves around the, the Newspeak appendix at the end. Yeah, because that's in, they talk about the fact it's in the past tense, isn't it? it? It's in the past tense. So yeah. there's almost like a bit where we it's have, fallen, hasn't it? yeah, the unremitting sort of grimness of the final pages with Winston and his final defeat. But then this appendix that very elegantly places all that in the past yeah. and, ta and talks about yeah. the regime as something that has, has, has fallen. Yeah, even, fallen uh, even mentions a date of 2050 as a, a target yeah. for something to happen. So between 1984 and 2050, yeah, it's gone, yeah. that it, it has gone. So I thought that was, that was very interesting it, as a way as well to sort of give a, an optimistic ending without undermining yeah, the text itself. Yeah, it's quite subtly done, isn't it? Because it's just that sense of, you know, you only notice towards the end, it's like, yeah, so when they were doing this, well, who's writing this? Yeah. And, and a, you know, a, an appendix on language yeah, yeah. is something that's quite natural for all worlds. But again, with a book yeah. that is so sort of, you know, explicitly about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, just to go back to the point about the, um, the sort of disillusionment with with communism, but also with any kind of collective thing, you know, again, that character, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it maybe doesn't go far enough, but that idea of you know any kind of assertion of, of the individual in that kind of world, you know, the fact that he tries to keep a diary, that's kind of again, asserting, you know, that he is a, a sort of self rather than part of a machine, you know, and that's the whole point, they're trying to break down, isn't it, that he has to just be part of the party, and the, they talk about the party will be eternal, and so, you know, you have to remove the self and just kind of, you know, be part of this larger organisation, so to sort of assert that, to have an eye, you know, even to have an eye, the idea of an eye is kind of sort of revolutionary, isn't it? It lurches, I think, from that idea that that's... Well, I mean, and it's interesting here how many times we're using to describe it, both as, you know, it's both historical and it's sort of social science aspect and it's satirical and it functions as a novel and it has aspects of a love story and it has some aspects of science fiction. But it was funny reading it when, you know, like I said, O'Brien's idea of how it plays is on the page where, he, you know, I'm repeating myself here, repeating him, but he says, we don't want to defeat you, we want to change you. And that, to me, is where it lurches into a kind of horror science fiction thing, where even in the most actively repressive regimes of the 40s, or even the present day, and this is what I think it goes back to the wider level, that you, you can at least shut up and have a private life. However miserable, you know, those things are, we assume, free from interference. So by taking it and pushing it into that, I think that's what really kind of raises it into a sort of kind of horrific philosophical, psychological investigation into the nature of being but equally if you were putting a totalitarian state together it would be remiss of you not to think about that stuff because those are really the operating principles of repression and suppression how do you control in information how do you control people's perception is there a way of managing language and if push comes to shove can we lock you in a room until you change your mind i mean that's really the darkest iteration of how an idea can be trust or implied on an individual than you possibly can. So I think, you know, almost regardless of his life stage or political stance, I think as a writer, it behoves you once you've started to get into that idea, I think you have to see it through. And any other conclusion other than him being relieved 
that he now loves Big Brother would be kind of a cop-out and would feel like that. And then just one other thing was that when, when, when O'Brien's talking about the fact that it won't matter when he, O'Brien, dies, someone takes his place, the thing is the thing. They think they have transcended humanity, whereas you know, we could argue that they've sort of descended below it. But it made me think of other kind of science fictional group constructs, like what he was really talking about was something like the Borg in Star Trek, like just a, you know, an endless realm of sort of the sentient but linked beings who were as replaceable as one another but only existed as a group, and those things, you know, and other, other bits of writing which exist to sort of explore the same idea. And lastly, I think we should be, well, not lastly, I'm not saying this is the end, but of all the points I'm stuffing into this statement. It's good, isn't it, that none of us have talked about the television show Big Brother. And I know I have done now, and thereby broken the spell. But that's what we've come to kind of think about how much, you know, that's dominated people's association with this book. So I think, in a way, we should be glad that, that and I didn't even think about that until I thought about the fact we hadn't said it. I mean, thank fuck. So the book has a life beyond that. But that's interesting in terms of what you were saying about, you know, what people watch on screens and so you essentially have a sort of bourgeois experience of pointing and looking at other people through the screen as opposed to a screen where some kind of elite force waits for you to make a mistake. We look at each other, you know. So there we go. But it merits timely acknowledgement. But not as much as the fact we hadn't yet acknowledged it. There's double thing for you. Uh, Declan's going to read uh, a short piece from the novel now. Out loud or just to yourself? <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah, this is um, Parsons, who we haven't spoken about. He's, he's really important, I think, isn't he? And this is a, a section involving Parsons. Parsons gave Winston a glance in which there was neither interest nor surprise, but only misery. He began walking jerkily up and down, evidently unable to keep still. Each time he straightened his pudgy knees, it was apparent that they were trembling. His eyes had a wide-open, staring look, as though he could not prevent himself from gazing at something in the middle distance. What are you in for? said Winston. Thought crime, said Parsons, almost blubbering. The tone of his voice implied at once a complete admission of his guilt and a sort of incredulous horror that such a word could be applied to himself. He paused opposite Winston and began eagerly appealing to him. You don't think they'll shoot me, do you, old chap? They don't shoot you if you haven't actually done anything. Only thought, which you can't help. I know they give you a fair hearing. Oh, I trust them for that. They'll know my record, won't they? You know what kind of chap I was. Not a bad chap in my way. Not brainy, of course, but keen. I tried to do my best for the party, didn't I? I'll get off with five years, don't you think? Or even ten years. A chap like me could make himself pretty useful in a labour camp. They wouldn't shoot me for going off the rails just once. Are you guilty? said Winston. Of course I'm guilty, cried Parsons with a servile glance at the telly screen. You don't think the party would arrest an innocent man, do you? His frog-like face grew calmer and even took on a slightly sanctimonious expression. Thought crime is a dreadful thing, old man, he said sententiously. It's insidious. It can get hold of you without your even knowing it. Do you know how it got hold of me? In my sleep. Yes, that's a fact. There I was, working away, trying to do my bit. Never knew I had any bad stuff in my mind at all. And then I started saying, I started talking in my sleep. Do you know what they heard me saying? He sank his voice like someone who was obliged for medical reasons to utter an obscenity. Down with Big Brother. Yes, I said that. Said it over and over again, it seems. Between me and you, old man. I'm glad they got me before it went any further. Do you know what I'm going to say to them when I go before the tribunal? Thank you. I'm going to say thank you for saving me before it was too late. Who denounced you, said Winston. It was my little daughter, said Parsons with a sort of doleful pride. She listened at the keyhole. 
heard what I was saying and nipped off to the patrols the very next day. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? I don't bear her any grudge for it. In fact, I'm proud of her. It shows I brought her up in the right spirit anyway. I think there's so much there in terms yeah. of uh, his resignation, um, you know, uh, the bit where he talks about being useful in a labour camp. He's so sort of broken, isn't he? And, and also that terrible tragedy of the pride he takes in the fact that his daughter is prepared to... I mean, I've seen for such a, a small sequence, it captures so much of what is, is powerful about the book. Before we finish, uh, we like to do a little bit at the end of each luxury book club session where uh, on the panel we talk about works that are complementary or can operate as a counterpoint to what we've been talking about or just um, something that you've enjoyed recently that, that could be relevant. I'm going to go across the panel. If anyone has anything uh, in the audience, do feel free again to, to raise your hands. My pick would be a comic called V for Vendetta uh, by Alan Moore and Dave Lloyd. Very similar ground to 1984, but interesting because uh, it was made uh, coming up to 1984. Similar again in terms of, you know, Big Brother gives us a lot of, of language that's useful in sort of classifying um, some terrible ideas. And um, it's the Vendetta that has, has given, I think, an identity to a lot of, of oppositional movements in the country, in the world, particularly anonymous who have adopted the sort of Guy Fawkes mask. Uh, imagery. Yes, a, a tremendous piece and still still quite powerful even though it's 30 years old. Um, yeah, no, I think I was just sort of thinking about then um, when we were talking about that idea of, you know, in certain circumstances, like the tiniest thing being quite a rebellious act, I was just thinking um, there's a book by um, a German guy called Hans Verlader, which I think was written in the, in the 40s and, and it was translated a few years ago um, by Michael Hoffman and it, it came out with Penguin. I think it's called Alone in Berlin or something like that, something to do with Berlin and being on your own. Um, and that's, it's a similar sort of thing, it's just this, essentially this guy who's kind of mid-ranking, fairly nondescript, sort of beaten by, you know, circumstance. But he just does these very minor acts of rebellion, you know, he, he passes notes to his neighbours, he does very minor things, but he, you know, very quickly becomes untenable as a citizen, because he's done even these minor infractions. And, and it's a really tense kind of thing about how the smallest thing in a totalitarian kind of regime is, is really, um, you know, you're, you're doomed not to do anything. So that's kind of interesting, I think. And also, the other one that kind of I was thinking about after reading it was a yeah, completely different world, but um, catching the riots, the idea of not being a phony, you know, like how you sort of are a person, it's obviously a different um, point of life, but that kind of holds in the core field, like, the, the idea of authenticity, I thought, that kind of, yeah, that's sort of thing as well. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say again, The Lives of Others, the, the German film about East Germany, um, which is, you know, it's fantastic and, and you know, as we've said, has a lot of, a lot of resonance and connection to this. A, a, an amazing work of fiction, which I think was one of the last ones that I did read, was um, set in North Korea. It's called The Orphan Master Son by Adam Johnson, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And that's, I couldn't talk enough about that. that I mean, that's, that's an amazing, amazing book. And I was so kind of transported and amazed by part of what Adam Johnson does as a writer, but also the sense that you had to some degree been inside that regime that I almost thought I didn't want to read anything else for ages because it was such a sort of amazing, another really amazing example of, of what fiction can do. And then I would go back to my earlier reference as well, that I think, I think if you, if you, it sounds like an erroneous comparison, but isn't, if you, you know, if, you, if you've never seen it, then see it, or if you've seen it, see it again, you can watch Game of Thrones as an exploration of this same idea. And as Clive James said in the New Yorker this week, he isolates one scene in particular where, if you know it or if you don't, there's one character called Cersei who controls authority, and there's another character 
called Littlefinger, who is trying to usurp the authority. Littlefinger says to Cersei, knowledge is power. And, and she says, no, power is power. And almost has him killed within that instant. And that is really the dynamic of that story. And that, I think, is also the, the key issue of, of this book, if you want to take it to a fundamental level. Of, yeah, you've got some good ideas, but what are you going to do with them when push comes to shove? book I'd recommend is called uh, Orwell's Revenge, a 1984 pound set by Peter Huber. And it's kind of half fictional continuation of the story, but also half uh, exploration of Orwell and his relationship with technology and his views of technology. And in particular, uh, how that uh, is put into his writing, and in particular in 1984, uh, with the telescreen. And the, the, that being kind of the key piece of technology in the book that allows, the, enables the, the impression to take place. And, and I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it, but I would definitely recommend that. What's that called again? Uh, it's called Orwell's Revenge, the 1984 Palimpsest by Peter Huber. I, I really recommend a book um, called Sulfuric Acid um, by a Belgian author called Amélie Lafont. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, it's, I think it's based on a, an experiment that did happen between telling a bunch of people they're the guards and a bunch of people they're the prisoners. It starts with that dynamic. But it's a TV program called Concentration. Um, and the power dynamic between one of the prisoners and, and one of the guards that becomes obsessed with her um, is really interesting because she has very little at her disposal and she manages to rally this, this quite strong resistance. Um, and, and bits of that come from bits of Orwell that I've read, but it's, it's very original and I would recommend it to anyone. On the dystopian fiction side, Handmaid's Tale, because this is obviously from a masculine point of view and then from Mad Out, would you have this kind of feminine point of view and it's amazing if you've not already encountered it. And also, in terms of this kind of lone masculine figure, a lot of J.T. Ballard, obviously High Rise is a film at the moment, but Drowned World, um, Concrete Island, a lot of unsympathetic male characters making really bad decisions and things spiraling out of control. Because we don't get enough of that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, I never thought of it as a satire, to be honest, but uh, it instantly does uh, Go into this. If you want the satire of 1984, in my view, it's Brazil. Telling government's film is totally, you know, it, it it brings out that, but but it mirrors the ending fantastically as well. I think that it, you know, it's just his his view on it. Um, yeah, I guess a piece of non-fiction that I think speaks somewhat to this book is uh, "Manufacturing Consent for Control in Democratic Societies" by Noam Chomsky and Edward S. Herman. Um, and I think it picks up themes like newspeak and um, and doublethink because it it sort of dissects the way that um, propaganda systems uh, are, are set up and perpetuated in in democratic um, systems mechanisms like how um, uh, you know the the, the function of um, and, corporately owned newspaper, for instance, is to sell affluent audiences to advertisers and what that means for the psychology of someone um, someone writing for those newspapers, the kind of, you know, the, the kind of double think they might engage in because they need to um, put, push particular points of view for their employer and also the way that they might um, structure through the language they use in a way that's maybe not entirely dissimilar to newspeak. Um, you know, structure through the use of language, the ways that they want their readers to perceive the world. 
um, and maybe structure it through a kind of system of what the things that are defined as viewpoints that are defined as moderate and viewpoints that are defined as extreme a kind of um, ac uh, acceptable continuum of, uh, of opinion. Um, so, uh, yeah, worth, <laughs> worth reading. Cheers. Okay, I think that is it. I'd like to thank the Genesis and Laura again for helping us put this on. Fabulous Backlist magazine for organising everything. Declan and Michael for joining me on stage and yourselves for coming out. Thank you very much. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programmes you may enjoy.